Hello there, friends. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. Today's episode is another episode where I make a new friend. It's very exciting. Scott Tusa is our guest today, and Scott is a Buddhist teacher based out of Brooklyn, New York. He was ordained by His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama, and spent nine years as a Buddhist monk, with much of that time engaged in solitary meditation retreat and study in the United States, India, and Nepal. And he now teaches meditation and Buddhist psychology nationally. So Scott was a really random connection on Instagram, and I fucking love the internet, you guys. Like, how cool is that? I just made a new friend who I never knew before. Thank you, internet. Thank you, Instagram. And I am so excited to talk with him. And I think I want to be his best friend. And I think you'll hear why in this episode as well. This was particularly interesting to me. I just, I don't know. I'm just really interested in Buddhism and Buddhist psychology in particular. And, you know, he talks in this episode about how when he found it, it was like coming home. And that makes so much sense to me too, because I feel like one of the things that Buddhism is so helpful with is in not punishing ourselves. And if you are anything like me and struggle in the realm of self-worth and self-compassion, any chance I can get to not punish myself is probably a good idea. So it was really exciting for me to be able to talk to Scott, and I hope you enjoy this as well. Well, hello, Scott. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm excellent. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Sweet. Okay. And so just so the listeners know, we don't know each other at all. I don't know how on Instagram if you found me or I found you, but you'd sent me a message and was like, hey, I do these meditations. You want to join my my listserv? And I was like, yeah, totally. And then I just asked you to be on here. So we're just getting to know each other right now. Totally. I'm excited. So <laughs> why don't you tell people who you are and what you do? Yeah. So my name is Scott Tusa. Let's see. I'm a meditation and Buddhist teacher. I've been sort of studying in depth in the, mostly the Tibetan Buddhist traditions for the last 20 years since I was a teenager. And I was a monk for nine years. And I currently live in Brooklyn, New York. And I teach locally around the New York City area as well as travel around the country, leading retreats. I also work with people one-to-one and sort of counseling, healing work, as well as meditation mentoring and, and coaching work. Awesome. I have so many questions. Let's start at the beginning. So yeah. how does one, because I think it's so cool when I hear that people early in their life come to Buddhism, because for me, I've just, it's really probably been like the past 10 years that I've learned about it. And, and I'm just finding like, it just makes all the sense to me. And so I'm like jealous when people find it early in life. And <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm also just curious. How how did you stumble upon that at such a young age? I think really for me, it ties into, so my, my mom passed away when I was a teenager. So when I was 15, she died of cancer. And I was really like kind of into the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area punk scene at that age. And I was in punk bands and playing around at like 9 to 4 Gilman Street, the famous punk club, Rancid and Green Day and bands like that. Oh, so gotcha. But anyway, so that was kind of my scene. And I was pretty much angry, agnostic, I guess you could say, anti-everything. And then, you know, after my mom's death, it sort of really changed something in me. And it wasn't even like a conceptual thing that it really changed that much. It was more of a, a, a feeling arose in me that really wanted to search deeper into the purpose of my life, search deeper into mm. like 
is there more meaning than just like, you know, having a bunch of fun and dying? <laughs> right. And that's kind of when my path started. And for me, it was a few years of just exploring different kinds of spiritual traditions. Mm. I, was, I was a drummer, so I started exploring world music. And mm. I always grew up, my dad's a jazz musician, so I grew up playing jazz as well as kind of playing in punk and metal bands. And I really got into Brazilian and, and Cuban music and African music, and I started to explore African religion. Mm. And then eventually kind of found my way into more uh, Vedic or uh, this kind of like three or four year traje- trajectory until uh, maybe like 18 or 19 I met Buddhism. First things first, let's start a band. <laughs> yeah. I'm a singer and awesome. good drummers are hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. And it's so interesting, you know, you talking about the death of your mom kind of leading you down that path. I feel the same way with my parents both died in 2014. And oh, wow. I felt at the time I'd never really grieved before in that way. I'd never had anyone close to me die. And though I wasn't exactly, I didn't really have like a great relationship with them. It's uh, your parents, obviously it's a big deal. And my brother and I both got a lot of comfort in like just exploring what different religions had to say about death. And my brother, you know, kind of read the book of dying and and those sorts of things. And I, I really, I probably feel like since they died, that really is when my interest in Buddhism was peaked a little bit more because I don't know, I just feel like Buddhism gives you an answer without telling you what to do. Yeah, for sure. That's what's so awesome. And what I really disliked about Christianity is that it was always telling me what to do. Yeah. I later learned that and came into that where it felt like Buddhism was more prompting an investigation Mm -hmm. for me rather than providing an answer. Right. But originally, when I first encountered it, like I felt like I came home. Mm. I felt like this makes the most sense out of anything I've seen for explaining why the world functions the way it does and why my mind and emotions function the way it does. Right. You know, that's kind of what clicked with me. And that was beyond the religious aspects of it. That was really just connecting to just the raw kind of content of what the Buddha came to in his own realizations. And so then how did you go from, okay, these are techniques I'd like to apply to my life to I'm going to become a monk. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think really the starting place was I, I read Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. And that book really opened me up to this world of like, wow, there's these people called yogis and they can do amazing things and Mm -hmm. how they work with the mind. And I think at that point is when I when I felt a call to become a type of renunciate. We usually call it an Eastern tradition, someone who, you know, Mm -hmm. decides not to engage in like a normal kind of average family life and instead Mm -hmm. just dedicates to a spiritual life. And so at that point, I wanted to become a monk. And then when I met Tibetan Buddhism and, and, and other forms of Buddhism, I wanted to do that within those traditions. And my first, one of my first teachers I met was a Tibetan teacher who I ended up moving in with after a few years to become his like personal cook and kind of his attendant and helping him with things. And he was an older man and he was quite amazing. He had gone through the cultural revolution in Tibet and actually at 16 walked out of Tibet and into India hmm. only to rebuild his own monastery out of the jungles of South India with, with uh, of course, other monks and other Tibetan people. No big deal. Yeah, like no big you, like you do on a Saturday. <laughs> exactly. So he wasn't just like a learned scholar and an amazing ex- experienced practitioner, but was like, has incredible qualities of what that means to lose your country and be exiled from it. So I got to live with him. And I think that's when it really became more formed of 
what it would be like to be a monk and kind of getting more ideas on that as well as getting more inspiration for it. And I wanted to do it then. That was around age 20 or 21. And then talking to one of my other main teachers about it, I decided to wait. And so, you know, that, that was in Boston. I ended up moving from Boston back to the Bay Area, becoming a recording engineer and producer and recording like indie rock bands in the Bay Area for six or seven more years while I still pursued Buddhist studies and practice and would go on retreats throughout those years. And then eventually around 27, I was just like, you know, I think I'm cool off this. <laughs> like, mm. like I, I don't need to be like the next big name rock producer. Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go do what I originally wanted to do. And that's when I, you know, went again to one of my main teachers and asked him and he was like, yes, go for it. And mm. gave me robes. And then I made the plans to go to India to take my monastic coordination. Wow. And so you did that for nine years. And then why did you decide to join the secular world again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, technically, I don't feel like I've joined the secular world, but but I know what yeah. you mean. You're wearing uh, more than robes now. So. <laughs> yeah, we usually kind of use the term householder practitioner, I guess. Is the hmm. way. Sometimes we say lay practitioner, but that word actually means like you don't know what you're talking about. Right, so exactly. not a very good English word. So we kind of sometimes use householder. But yeah, the reason I decided to go back to the householder life essentially it's complicated. I don't think there's one reason. I think for me, I very much loved being a monk. It was a really precious opportunity where, you know, I could dedicate to lots and lots of practice and study and really deepen my path in a way I definitely could have not at mm -hmm. that time as a householder practitioner for me personally. And it was a really tough decision. I, I wanted to stay a monk because I, I loved how it created the environment for me to really dive deep into my Buddhist practice. I love that. But at the same time, in this country, we don't have a lot of structure and infrastructure for Western monastics, nuns or monks. And so mm -hmm. there's some there's a few Buddhist monasteries and nunneries kind of around, but there's just not a lot. So we're kind of left to our own means. And mm -hmm. luckily, I had the support of my teachers and I lived in retreat centers and they gave me some support. But it was still very isolated because I didn't have a community to live in. And so when you're a Buddhist monastic, one of the prime things is you live in community. And that not only helps to support you, but it's it's part of the practice of being a monastic in the Buddhist tradition. And so, yeah, eventually I, I, I was falling into habits that weren't so helpful for keeping the vows anymore. Mm. You know, part of me also was curious about a partner again, as I had healed some of my own trauma and, and wounding around that. So, yes, yeah, so it was a kind of a combo, some social isolation as well as me changing and, and wanting some other things in my life at the time. As you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, of course, I think a lot of people's instant reaction is, oh my God, I could never do that. Right. And I, yeah. I'm wondering how much of that is just our socialization in this culture that it's all about more and having and doing and, and racing and just going and to think about spending your life studying and in contemplation and, and being slow or slower or more intentional, I think is just so counterintuitive to so many people. I'm sure people have said that before. Do you have reactions to that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, I think the top three questions slash comments I would get was first, uh, do you do Kung Fu? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I'm just joking. Like, that was a rare one. But it was always cracked me up when I right. get that. Oh the second God. was like, oh, I really want to meditate, but I can't stop my thoughts. Right. And I'd be like, well, that's not really what meditation is. And exactly. You know, get a chance to have a conversation with someone about it. 
And then the third would be that, which is like, wow, that that's that's amazing. Like people would just it kind of floored me actually because people didn't know me. They didn't they didn't know if I was a good guy or not. Mm. They just assumed something because of the robes I was wearing. And right. that's why, you know, as a monastic, you have a responsibility to because you're representing something. Mm-hmm. You can't just go around being, you know, an a-hole, I guess. Right. Not like you would. <laughs> Anyways, so, yeah, I would get that. And this is common thing like, wow, it's amazing what you're doing. Like, I, I treasure that. I, I can't even imagine doing that myself, you know, like that mm-hmm. kind of comment. And it always kind of struck me because. Yeah, I guess it is a kind of a pretty big leap of faith and it is quite challenging to sort of not have a intimacy with people on on a, you know, sexual intimacy intimacy mm-hmm. or, or that kind of thing and to live in a set of vows and stuff. But I think our view of it culturally isn't really that accurate mm-hmm. because we we just usually have a view of it maybe more through the entertainment industry or through pop culture or mm-hmm. through, you know, little Instagram memes and things that we see, <laughs> like a holy looking monk, like right. sitting quiet. So I got all kinds of weird, like people would ask me like, oh, are you silent? All, you know, and I'm like, no. And then they, <laughs> no. Things like, yeah. Or right. like, and if I dare, I say the word, like drop an F-bomb somewhere, be like, wow. And I'm like, well, I'm just a person, you know right. what I mean? Yeah. I'm not, I'm special. This is just something I'm doing to interact with my spiritual past. So it was fun for me to kind of have that conversation with people and kind of like show that we can be working on ourselves spiritually and still be down to earth. It doesn't have to get all kind of like woo woo. And I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I I dig the woo woo, though. Yeah, it's all good. Right. Even the woo woo can be grounded and down to earth. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of one thing that I I feel like I am attempting to bridge the gap because I'm a person who 10 years ago, if you told me that I was meditating on a regular basis, I would have been like, Psh, yeah, right. Because <laughs> I was one of those people who said, oh, I, I can't do it because I just can't get my mind to stop. And now I do my 20 minutes twice a day and literally don't think I could survive without it because mm-hmm. it's helped me so much. And I feel like the way that I look and the way that I act, I have an opportunity to speak to people who might not necessarily like hear that message from somebody who would be wearing robes, you know, because they would just instantly reject that. Right. Yeah. So I think it's cool, you know, doing the what did you say it is? Oh, householder practitioner. Householder, because you get to bridge the gap. That's exactly what you're doing. Exactly. And I think, you know, as I started teaching the Dharma more and teaching meditation more over the last 10 years. You know, it was wonderful to be able to meet people in the form or identity as a monk or whatever they perceived mm. uh, from that. But it's also really wonderful to just meet people where they are and like, in the sense, like you look like them. And mm-hmm. I think part of me longed for that too, in a sense, there's less of a wall, yeah. you know, between myself and another. And I don't think, I think some of my friends from monastics and really amazing teachers There's not really like that wall comes down pretty quickly. But for me personally, I just, you know, I I like being able to relate to people just as a friend and kind of, Mm -hmm. yeah, those practical sensibilities. Well, and I think regardless of the way that you act as a monastic, I think that there's there's a power dynamic that's inherent in people's perception, whether you like it or not. And so that wall is there. Uh, Yeah, exactly. I usually call it a glass wall. Yeah, and yeah, it's true. It's there. And there's there's actually benefits to it, too. Meaning in the sense, not the power dynamic necessarily, but mm-hmm. the people will listen to what you say sometimes more. Yeah. 
Right. You know, and, and if you if you have genuine compassion for them mm-hmm. and you really wish them the best transformation in your life, that means something. But I find if when you speak truth and if you hit someone's heart, I don't mm-hmm. think that matters so much what you look like. No, exactly. Yeah. I always like surprising people. right like you know they get this one perception and then you're like bam i know some shit and they're like what (laughs) (laughs) are you familiar with Kristen neff yeah yeah i do know so i was utilizing kind of her stuff because i think it's a good like one two three the components of self-compassion which for folks who don't know what that is give her a google Kristen with an i n e f f and we were talking about mindfulness as being one of the components of self-compassion. And, and I always ask who hates meditation, you know, and half this is a group of people who are in recovery, early recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. And of course, like mm-hmm. most people say that, oh, I can't get my mind to stop thinking and I'm bad at it, you know, all these types of things. And I, I love being able to spread the word of guess what? Like that's normal. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I mean, I've just, it in the way that I do on the podcast here, but I'd love to hear for you. What do you say to those people who say, I can't meditate because I can't get my mind to shut off? Oh, that's a big one. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. I, Just in, I, in I, a nugget, right? A soundbite. Yeah. I think in general, I mean, the, usually what I say is, and what I'll say here is, that's not really the point. Like, exactly. you don't need to shut your mind off. Actually, it's pretty boring to shut the mind. Like, that's a pretty awful mm-hmm. goal if we want to shut our mind off because. There's so much wonderful things that comes out of our minds as well. You know, compassion, mm-hmm. loving kindness, creativity that all comes from our body, emotion and mind. So, yeah, I think for me, that's the big point is just proving to people like, you know, I think it's easy to get into extremes where it's like, yes, how would I be able to achieve a sense of, of groundedness and calmness when my mind is still running like crazy, you know? Mm-hmm. And and in Buddhism, we're really the premise is, of course, we need to have a certain amount of a settled mind and a stability there. Actually, when we start to look at the nature of thoughts uh, from that settled place, it's okay. You know, we have a saying in Tantric Buddhism, the more thoughts, the more Dharmakaya. And Dharmakaya is like the ground of, of, of all awakening or mm. kind of essence of, of enlightened mind or awakened mind. And mm. so it's sort of a funny phrase where you'd say, what do you mean the more thoughts, the more dharmakaya? So, of course, that has to be kind of explained. But it's basically saying that thoughts are not really the problem. It's our clinging, right. how we're interacting with them. That's, that's the issue most of the mm-hmm. time. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's all, you know, from the psychological standpoint, acceptance and commitment therapy. That's exactly what that is. And in my world, there's a lot of people do CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that's such bullshit. I can't feel differently just because I know my thoughts aren't real. It's that piece of how we relate to the thought because my problem was clinging to, you know, whatever sadness or depression or anxiety or fear and running with that until I just Mm. couldn't stand myself anymore. Yeah. So I dig, I dig. Awesome. Yeah. Let's shift into how you feel about the word healer and how that may or may not relate to your work. I don't use it that much to relate to my work, but I think it does. In traditional Buddhism, you don't see the word healing that much. Hmm. But of course, we can use it as an analogy for the path if we'd like, in the sense that we have a perspective that we need a certain amount of healing 
and how I relate to healing is we need a certain amount just to function as a healthy human being. Mm -hmm. And if that's not happening, I don't know if the spiritual path is going to go so well, meaning (laughs) there's just a lot of room for spiritual bypassing to happen. Mm, Spiritual bypassing. Ooh, that sounds ominous. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's books on it now, so you can read more about it, but it basically is is a term referring to when we're not facing what we need to be facing emotionally or psychologically and instead we're using a form of spirituality meditation whatever to not actually deal with what's there and the suffering that needs to be met yeah so i mean there's both you know many forms of bypassing we use and then I, and then i guess this term could be applied to how that happens in the spiritual realm or religious realm yeah i feel like denial is a form of spiritual bypass. And I feel like I'm seeing that so much, not not just necessarily with clients, but just in, in the world at large. And two, because, you know, everyone's so focused on let's like, we got to be woke, right? And yeah, to be yeah. woke, I think if we are fueled by perfectionism and or this desire to do it right, because there's a right and wrong, <laughs> then we get pigeonholed yeah. into, I think, probably spiritual bypassing because we can't tolerate the disappointment of what if I'm not woke or what if I'm presenting that. And I guess I'm coming to the the belief that unless we become more able to tolerate shame and to tolerate our own humanness, we're just going to stay in that denial. Yeah, for sure. And, and even just with terms... You know, I, I call it the woke Olympics these days, <laughs> where, it's a, where it's like, how woke Hello. can you really be? Oh, my you know? God. I want to win. I want a gold medal. Exactly. And and mm-hmm. right in there, actually, we're playing right into the hands. If we want change mm-hmm. and we want transformation and equity and, and, you know, all of that good stuff, end of oppression for marginalized people, mm-hmm. you know, we could throw that in there. Yeah. Of course. World peace. If we all want all that. I don't know if we're going to get that by playing right into the hands of of how neoliberal capitalism forces us into competition with each yes. other. Yes. Oh God. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I didn't. You know, Bell Hooks, you know, writes on this and wrote a bunch mm-hmm. on this. And so, the, you know, the intersections of of patriarchy, systemic white supremacy, and capitalism. And so, for me, it's like looking at that. Then it's like because I'm mainly in the meditation Buddhist world, and of course, all these things intersect with that. But I'm really interested in how that then affects our, just like you pointed out, like our competitive nature in mm-hmm. meditation and, you know, trying oh, to get somewhere and trying to like, oh, I need to self-improve and all these kinds of things, you know? My my husband and I have a joke that he's going to write a satire book called Winning at Meditation. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Because we're both recovering perfectionists, I'll say. And sometimes like we'll we'll meditate together and I've got my little timer and I'm like, oh, are you ready? And he's like, yes, I'm ready. And then we'll start the timer. <laughs> Close our eyes and he'll say, I win. He'll just whisper it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so I think I that, that. that'd be a bestseller, winning at meditation. Asterisk, totally. not at all. Totally. <laughs> totally. It's what I'm often helping people with the most. It's just mm-hmm. like sort of like myself included. I've had to work through a lot of that and continue to of my own perfectionism and sort of how that plays on our lack of self-worth and value. Yeah. Will you, will you talk more about your, your personal journey with perfectionism? Because it's something I talk a lot about, and I, I'd love to hear your perspective and not just my own thoughts echoing over and over. I think in general, yeah, I, I'm definitely a, a 
recovering perfectionist as well, mm-hmm. um, or perfectionist in recovery, just because for me, it shows up just in the, the, the low self-worth I carried with me for most mm-hmm. of my life, just the sense of hollowness that something's not right. And I need something to come in to make things right. And that could be a partner, a band I'm going to be in, Buddhism, whatever, right? That's mm-hmm. a new city to live in. And somehow that's going to make me whole. And, you know, the Buddhist path eventually led me down into, and, and my personal teachers and, and their advice, that, you know, that's not going to happen if, if I keep looking at things and, and looking outside of myself. Yeah. Make wholeness, which is something, from a Buddhist perspective, we're already whole. It's right. not like, a, you know, this is, you know, mm-hmm. kind of aiming back into our conversation on healing. From the Buddhist perspective, it's like, we could call in one way the Buddhist path itself, we could call a path of ultimate healing, of coming into our nature, mm. which is already awake, in a sense, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. have that potential or seed for that. Right. So the, the Buddhist path for me personally, has this aspect has been deeply healing in a sense of just recognizing that I'm not a flawed person. Fundamentally, I have lots of conditions and habits that are not necessarily wholesome and constructive. But, but those can be changed, and those are on the surface. That, that's not fundamentally what my nature is. And that really helped me over time. And, of course, that, that concept combined with my practice over the years has really helped to come into a, an aspect of just helpfulness and, and just accepting what is right now and, and trying to understand how the way I cling to the different identities that come up for me, how those cause me suffering. So a lot of it has been around that. So it's traditionally we don't use healing, but it could be applied. Is there a reason why that word isn't used or is it a translation thing? Do you have any idea? I don't know 100%. It could be a translation thing. I think because ultimately Buddhist path is working with going beyond just being a healthy human being. Yeah, okay, okay. But it is important to, like I said already, it's important to be a healthy human being. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there's also... Buddhist takes on science and metaphysics and mm-hmm. medicine and, and all that kind of stuff. So obviously there are paths of healing within the tradition, but ultimately that's why we, I think because it's aimed beyond what comes about as a human being. And, and we would mm-hmm. say the, from a traditional perspective that being a human being is actually a, a result of a virtuous cause, but at the same time, it's still bound from mm-hmm. a Buddhist perspective. This is bound within what we call the five aggregates. So, you know, sometimes people interpret that, again, if we're kind of more on the atheist side, that then, oh, like, now we're talking about something outside. And it is and it isn't. Because we're still talking about mind in a sense. But at the end, it's sort of mind in Buddhism incarnates either based off of, like, no control at all. And it's Mm -hmm. just a matter of cause and effect. Or one eventually, once one transcends uh, some of the clinging that binds us and one can eventually have control over where you want to move your consciousness essentially Hmm. Uh, that's getting into some more esoteric but either way i like i said it could be we could still use it just to describe other aspects of the path oh there's so many things i want to ask you as a result of that but (laughs) but i know i know you're gonna have an appointment right after this so i definitely want to make sure we cover your thoughts on wounded healer and if that applies to yourself yeah, I thought about this, and, and I think it does, you know, j- just in the very way we've been, kind of our conversations drifted already. Like I said, I've spent my whole life dealing with how our modern society shapes us and mm-hmm. the conditioning of a sense of hollowness and a sense of 
not feeling right with myself, not feeling okay, and there being so much abundance around me growing up and so much privilege, but yet I, I wasn't happy. And just so, like something was missing. And for me, I carried this wound all the way for, you know, I still carry it to a certain degree. Mm-hmm course. And I carried it through being a monk. And, you know, and then I started to really look at that, noticing that, okay, maybe I need to look at directly what's going on now. And I need some tools that maybe aren't traditionally taught within Buddhism to work with this. Hmm. And so for me, my teaching and how I work with healing others through spiritual counseling, you know, retreats, group teaching, all of that, is based off of the woundedness I, I've experienced. I don't mm-hmm. think it, it could be anything else. Because for me, as Buddhism enters our culture more and more, it has to meet us with our own specific illnesses we're dealing with, you know, mm-hmm. Physi- mm-hmm. Well, physically and emotionally. And so for so many of us, we suffer from this. And I think, you know, I, I don't want to get a whole thing of like <laughs> the reasons why I have theories, but yeah. but it's there. I don't know if I'd call myself a healer in the sense mm-hmm. Like for me, maybe people can receive healing in combination with us working together or, mm-hmm. or something I said, but I don't feel like I'm healing anyone. I just feel like I want to just show up with people and connect and figure out like how we make the best use of this life. And the connection is what's healing. Exactly. And, and I think the woundedness I've experienced and continue to experience, I think, inform that. And while you're right in line with pretty much every other person that I've interviewed, that there's a reluctance to take on the the term healer because there's some sort of like icky narcissistic thing that people Mm. feel like, oh, if I call myself a healer, then people are going to think that I think I'm doing this rather than Mm. we are, are creating this. Yeah. So I think it's all in the definition, the way that you decide to put it on or not. No, totally. And I, I've never, yeah, I've never had to think about it before this, this interview. <laughs> this well, podcast. you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. No, it's good. It actually, I was thinking about it yesterday and, and, and talking to my partner about it. And yeah, it brought up an interesting conversation, you know, about this very thing about like you just mentioned in it, you know, what we would call in Buddhism, like the dependent origination, meaning everything leans or everything depends. Mm. It's not just coming from one side, it depends very much on the two or more parties involved, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I feel I would like to see fostered more in spiritual community and whatever mm-hmm. community in general is like how we're showing up for each other in those kinds of ways and compassion and in loving ways. Mm-hmm. But recognizing like, you know, even power dynamics and, and power structures can change that way because there can be a leader, yet it doesn't mean that leader holds all the power, the powers in the community. Mm-hmm. It's funny, I'm giving a talk in a couple weeks on shame in the workplace, and I was just looking online for like things about vulnerability in the workplace, and I saw a picture that said, this is the picture of a boss, and this is the picture of a leader, and the boss was kind of like shaking their fists, like telling people to to pull this rock or whatever, and then the mm-hmm. leader was at the front of the pack pulling it along with them. Mm-hmm. There's some good stuff on this in systems theory work, uh, like Otto Scharmer. He's an author who does a lot of stuff on this, mm-hmm. on leadership. And anyways, yeah, I was reading some of that. But mm-hmm. yeah, there's just, these days there's just so much, too much to read. Not I know. I, <laughs> yeah, I'll never. And I am such a slow reader that I'll never yeah. get through all of them. Thank God for audiobooks. I know. I feel the same way. <laughs> yes. So we still have a little bit of time and there's a yeah. thing that I just kind of personally want to dig into. And so I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this. So personally, I was raised in a Christian household. 
at the end of the day, I felt like there was too much right and wrong. And that created a lot of shame for me. Mm -hmm. And coming into Buddhism has been like a breath of fresh air, like having this, like everything is relative and it's all your relationship to it. But for whatever reason, I still need to believe in God. I still need to have this something outside of me that cares for me and loves me. And, you know, maybe it's the absence of the unconditionally loving parent that I didn't get or what, but I'm having a hard time reconciling because I want to go to in, into Buddhism like whole hog, but I believe in God. And I feel like people would be like, ah, ah, ah not so fast, Missy. You got to reject <laughs> that to get in here. It's like a club I can't join. <laughs> that's funny well first off i would say i don't think you immediately have to reject that belief to practice buddhism or to engage with with it not at all and then of course it's your own exploration over time of how that might shift for you and Mm. and or not and and how that opens for you i do want to say though devotion and relating to a higher power is a huge principle within buddhism but what sort of happened is There's been certain ways uh, Buddhism has been colonized and and seen through the lens of scientific materialism and sort of, we might even say, systemic white supremacy. Hmm. And these are just theories, you know, so uh, forgive me, anyone, if you really don't agree with me. It's just just (laughs) an open question. We can can disagree here and still be friends. Exactly. Though I'm just like, (laughs) I'm just so interested. So again, I, I don't know exactly what those lenses are, but obviously there's lenses that we see a different tradition through. And, and you know, Buddhism was held in Asian cultures, Indian, Chinese, Tibetan, et cetera, Vietnamese, Sri Lankan, and with also a very different way of perceiving the world and also an integrated view of ritual, the way one relates to a higher power and those sorts of things. And I think to make Buddhism palatable to the masses, some people felt it was necessary to take out some of the elements of it, like interacting and supplicating a higher power. For instance, Tibetan Buddhism, not a lot has been stripped out of it. It's one of the forms hmm. of Buddhism and access in the West where they've held on to that because, for instance, we have prayers where, you know, we're supplicating enlightened beings and stuff like that. Hmm. So it's just the, the higher power changes from a creator principle to beings who have freed themselves. It's just Mm, that mm -hmm. the principle here changes where it's not like they have all the power and we have to ask them for it. It's merely like connecting into them and asking for help because they've done the work. They've freed themselves. Mm -hmm. And we have that potential too. So it's like we're looking up to them like teachers and elders. And, you know, they have elements in in, in Buddhist religion of of a higher power like omniscience, omnipotence Mm. and great compassion. So it's all there. When you get really deeply into Buddhist philosophy, especially middle way philosophy, or what we call Mariamaka, and coming from Indian Mayana Buddhist traditions into Tibet, really the debate is like on if we are created by something. That's mm. the debate. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's really what the crux of it. But it has nothing to do with faith or right. faith is involved in Buddhism. You know, people want to study with me like more, more serious Buddhism. Of course, I'm willing to meet people where they are. But you know, I really want to see how we can translate things like this and the whole system into our culture as opposed to like having to take out things in order to make it appetizing to us or, or palatable. Some of my teachers have said the phrase like, we should meet the Dharma, not like drag the Dharma down to meet us. Because the problem mm-hmm. is then it won't have the same transformative capacities that mm-hmm. it can't. Now, I'm not saying it won't have any. Right. Of course it will. Just doing basic mindfulness has incredible 
transformative mm-hmm. ability for us, but it's not the whole package. And right. this is what I think. And, you know, as a serious practitioner over, over the last 20 years, this has been my exploration, how to meet these things that I couldn't connect with so much right away, like right. the idea of faith and devotion and things like that. But I learned their meaning and I learned what right. it evoked in me. And I felt that and experienced that. And in Buddhism, it's based off of reasoning. It's not just based off of blind faith. Right, right. So, so it's a big difference. And so, mm-hmm. but it's, the problem is, is it takes work and it takes effort and kind of that beating your head against the wall to, hmm. to move through. But I would say just anything good does, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In the sense, like any maturation process that we're going to have, it's going to take hard work and that trying to grok something that, you know, and, and what I usually tell people is, you know, something in the Buddhist religion, if you want to practice Buddhism and it doesn't fit with you right now, like some people have trouble with rebirth as a principle or, or mm. karma, or whatever. I say, just leave it in a glass closet in your living room, you know, <laughs> uh, metaphorically, like just, Put it aside for now, but put it in, in a glass closet so you have to walk by and look at it once in a while and mm-hmm. kind of reinvestigate as an open question as opposed to if we just go with our bias right away, you know, we lose because we don't get to investigate that. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like, you know, having the curiosity to look and say, oh, I'm having a reaction to this. I wonder what this could be about. I mean, and that's psychology, too. <laughs> right. And exactly. That's kind of how I try to help some of my clients shift ideologies that I can tell are causing them pain. Exactly. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, we're coming up against the hour, so I want to make sure to give you an opportunity. Is there anything that you didn't talk about today that you want to share with people? No, but I'm, I'm in, we could just, keep, I, I wish we could keep going. I'm I know. It. Can we be best friends? <laughs> Definitely. We're yes. going to have to meet up in New York or Chicago sometime. Absolutely. I was just thinking I'd love to host you in Chicago. I'd love to sure. host a, a Dharma talk or something. And then all our Chicago peeps can come hang out. Sweet. I'm in. That sounds awesome. Yay. Well, Scott, <laughs> thank you. This has really been super awesome. I, I definitely feel like I've gained a new friend and I'm very happy for that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, me too. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you so much to our guest, Scott Tusa. Scott, I'm totally going to be bugging you to be your best friend now, so I hope you really meant it when you said you wanted to talk some more. (laughs) Thanks, as always, to Andrea Clunder and Edwin Ruiz at the Creative Imposter Studios for editing. Thanks to Liam O'Donnell for the album art photo and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. For more information on Scott, you can visit my website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. And you can find Conversations with the Wounded Healer on Facebook and Twitter. And also don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, bye-bye.